Romans 3, 11, 33 through 36, 12, 1 and 2. Have you ever come on anything quite like this extravagant generosity of God, this deep, deep wisdom? It's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. Is there anyone around who can explain God? Anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? Anyone who has done him such a huge favor that God has to ask his advice? Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. Always glory, always praise. Yes, yes, yes. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit it into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So... This week and next week, we're going to talk about something really, really light and not controversial and so much fun. Oh, we're going to laugh and have a great time. We're going to talk about atonement theories. And the reason I chose this scripture was for just that verse you said. Is there anyone around who can explain God? I hope that through this series for the next two weeks that we feel that more keenly than maybe we even do today. We each have our own way of seeing the cross based on probably the church culture that was around us, our family. Maybe we have no childhood uh, church culture. Maybe maybe your, ch your church culture is from adulthood. And... Sometimes we hold on to these things so tightly that this is the way it must be and the way it's always been, and it has to be without ever thinking, maybe it wasn't always like that. Maybe there's a different perspective that I need to hear. So I, uh, the Hot Mess Sisters gave me a beautiful, beautiful book shower last week, and uh, one of the books on my list is Good Enough by Kate Bowler. And she talks about... Uh, a little bit about this. She says, sometimes we almost crave a tight regimen of rules only to suddenly lose momentum or decide that the cost is too high. So she says she wants us to be comforted by the, er the earliest sources of rebellion against rules in the Christian tradition. In the 6th century, St. Benedict had high hopes for the spiritual community he founded until his rules were deemed so unnecessarily strict that his followers tried to poison him. Don't worry, he survived, she says. Benedict's main achievement became a set of rules that enshrined a spirit of moderation and balance. He figured it out. He said, we hope to set down nothing harsh, nothing burdensome. As we progress in this way of life and faith, we shall run on the path of God's commandments, our hearts overflowing, with the inexpressible delight of love. Not to set down anything harsh. 
Some people will tell you that if you disagree with their point of view on the cross that you are a heretic. And I don't believe that can be the case. Now, what I am going to say to you, just right off the start, okay, I'm not going to tell you how to see the cross. That's not part of my job. Maybe that was another pastor, another Bible teacher. That was their job. That's not anywhere in my job description to tell you how to think. Am I right? Somebody remember my job description? I don't, I don't think so. Libby? Libby says no. So, But I do want us to think through this together. And when we get to the other side of it, I will tell you what I hold now. But I will not ask you to hold the same thing. You get to choose for yourself which one resonates with you. And there will be nobody from Imago that will tell you you should, you should, you have to see it differently. We might challenge you to think about it differently, but we're not going to tell you how to think. So there are several theories of atonement. There's a lot. There's a lot out there. So we're going to look at six. So today we're going to look at ransom, satisfaction, moral exemplar, and moral influence, Christus, Christus Victor, Next week, we're going to look at penal substitutionary atonement, which is probably what most of us grew up with, uh, and also the kaleidoscopic view, which is what I've titled this series. There's also the scapegoat theory, which is very fascinating. If you want to, like, Google scapegoat theory from René Girard, he's a French philosopher. He's French. What else can we say? Um, Google him. It's a very fascinating theory, but I'm not going to get into that today. I don't have time. Uh, there's also a governmental theory, a recapitulation theory, which I will briefly discuss today, dramatic theory, declaratory theory, guarantee theory, vicarious repentance theory, accident theory, and the martyr theory. All of these have various Bible verses to back them up, and some have none at all. Just trying to think through it. People throughout the centuries just trying to think through, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus died on a cross? So let's talk about the first one. It's the ransom theory. And I think I have, all right. Ransom theory, uh, I'm going to give you the couple of church fathers who, and, and I'm, I'm giving you the background of this so you'll know how long these theories have been around. That's important. So ransom theory, Irenaeus, from 130 to 202 CE, not too terribly long after Jesus' time, he was the originate, originator of pieces of this theory, not all of it but pieces. And Origen took the pieces of that theory and developed ransom theory with that. So Irenaeus was the first to lay the foundation of ransom theory. It was a theological explanation that for him began with the recapitulation theory, but it evolves. So Irenaeus saw Christ as the new Adam, who systematically undoes what Adam did. So where Adam was disobedient, Concerning God's edict, concerning the, fruit of the uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge, Christ was obedient even to the death on the wood of a tree. Irenaeus is also the first to draw parallels between Eve and Mary, contrasting the faithfulness, faithlessness of the former and the faithfulness of the latter. And in addition to reversing the wrongs done by Adam, Irenaeus thinks of Christ recapitulating or summing up human life. The context for ransom theory, and this is so important, was economic terror, systematic persecution, and marauding gangs. 
What do I mean by marauding gangs? There is a theologian, H.D. McDonald. He says, The condition of the Gentile world made such notions as bondage and release, captivity and ransom more tragically familiar. There were marauding gangs who roamed about capturing travelers and demanding payment for their release. So that's the background. They believed that Satan had legitimate rights over them, that we were bound and captive by Satan, and that we could not get free. Satan even had power over God. We were Satan's. And so there had to be a price paid to get us free from Satan. He had rights to us that God could not violate. Now, there are passages of scriptures that talk about this ransom idea, but the, the, the scriptures that talk about ransom being paid, they never say who the ransom should be paid to. This was just supposition on their part, that it had to be to Satan. But... Irenaeus rejected the idea that Satan was more powerful than God, and Origen believed there was some truth to it. Origen goes further to say that the evil one had been deceived and led to suppose that he was capable of mastering the soul, but did not see that to hold him involved a trial of greater strength than he could successfully undertake. Some of our church fathers believe that this, in this ransom theory that Satan was tricked, that God did the whole bait and switch on Satan. Yeah, okay, I'll give you my son. I will pay the ransom through my son. But God knew that he was going to raise Jesus up in three days. Satan didn't know that. He thought he won, he thought he won the thing. But then Satan, I mean, God pulls the bait and switch and says, ha-ha, my son's alive. We don't owe you anything. We're done. Or we do owe you. It's done. So Robert, Robin Collins in his book, Understanding Atonement, a new and orthodoxy theory, new orthodox theory says, essentially this theory claimed that Adam and Eve sold humanity over to the devil at the time of the fall. It required that God pay the devil a ransom to free us from the devil's clutches. God, however, tricked the devil into accepting Christ's death as a ransom, for the devil did not realize that Christ could not be held in the bonds of death. Once the devil accepted Christ's death as a ransom, this theory concluded, justice was satisfied and God was able to free us from Satan's grip. Some of the scriptures that are used to prop this theory up are Mark 10:45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and mankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. Matthew 20, 28, Just as the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And 1 Peter 1, 18, You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold. You know, when we were doing the music this morning, I, I even, you know, in Christ alone, I love that song. It has a lot of imagery of atonement in it. And that one line that says, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Did you know you were being taught ransom theory when you sang that song? You're also taught penal substitutionary theory too. But we're going to get into that next week. It's still a good song. But I will go on to say, this week and next week, I'm going to talk about a little bit, especially next week, how a lot of our theology comes from our hymns that we have just absorbed, not necessarily scripture. Does that make sense? 
How many of you remember these kind of songs, right? Back in the day, right? So, um, the church fathers who believed a form of ransom theory was Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Augustine, a part of it, not all of it. So it was there. So we're going to do a little something different with uh, the, the sermon series this week and next week. We're going to actually talk, and I want you to talk and ask questions as we go through these theories, okay? So, at this time, I have given you ransom theory in like a brief nugget, okay? Any thoughts, questions, you think about this theory, any holes you might think, well, wait a minute, they didn't think about that. The second theory is called satisfaction. And this was developed by Anselm of Canterbury, uh, 1033-ish. So this was his response to ransom theory. He did not like the idea that Satan had more power than God. That did not make sense to him. So it was this, this satisfaction theory was the first ever sustained response to atonement, to the subject of atonement. Ransom was kind of a little bit of piecemeal, hodgepodge, if you will. Satisfaction was like, I mean, he wrote, a, he, he wrote a book about it. That was the first. And he rejects the idea that Satan has that much power. The beauty of the order of the universe has been disrupted by human sin, and God receives satisfaction through the death of God's Son, fully human and fully divine, and that gives God the honor that God is due, and now God can forgive sin. Anselm used the word honor a lot. He believed that we owed God honor for who he is and what he had done. He uses the word debt a lot in, con in conjunction with theories of atonement. And when we, ever, when, we, when we use the word debt, I'm thinking of a song now, I can't remember, let's see, he... he Chris, you might know this. He, he paid a debt I could not pay. No, I, oh shoot, I'm so sorry. It's from way back in the day. Anybody? Let's, oh, oh, anybody? Okay, anyway, there's a song out there. It's like a, like a chorusy praise worship kind of thing, you know, back in the day. He paid, somebody say that? He paid it off. Uh, that's probably in there, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. Anyway, the, the phrase is, he paid a debt I could not pay. So anytime we see that language in a hymn or from a sermon or from a teaching, we owe that to Anselm. He uses logic and reasoning to detail his theory and only a smattering of Bible passages. Uh, he uses Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Colossians 2.14, obliterating the bond against us with its legal claims, which was, opposed, which was opposed to us. He also removed it from our midst, nailing it to the cross. And then John 8.34, Jesus answered them, Amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So Anselm said, we have made it our aim to discover our re by reason alone whether Christ's coming was essential for the salvation of mankind. And the church fathers who would adhere to this theory were Thomas Aquinas and eventually John Calvin. John Calvin said, Christ's death on the cross paid not a general penalty for humanity's sin, but a specific penalty for the sins of individual people. 
That is, when Jesus died on the cross, his death paid the penalty at that time for the sins of all those who are saved. One obviously necessary feature of this idea is that Christ's atonement is limited in its effect only to those whom God has chosen to be saved since the debt for sins was paid at a particular point in time at the crucifixion. Limited atonement. That's where he came up with that idea. So the third one that I want to talk about is the moral exemplar or moral influence. This one is actually the oldest. Uh, however, it was fleshed out through Peter Abelard. So Peter Abelard would talk about that God is loving and kind and not wrathful. God's not mad at us. The reason, the crawl, reason for the cross is he was demonstrating to us how to love others. That demonstration should so overwhelm us that it would cause us to behave better, either individually as a society. That's working out great, right? <laughs> it's supposed to inspire us to be better people, have better ideals, you know, health care for everyone, everyone has shelter, on and on. That doesn't seem to be working so great. This moral exemplar view of the atonement was the first post-biblical view articulated in the very earliest non-apostolic church. I'll, you'll read about this in some of the earliest of Christian writings like the Epistle, epistle to Diogentus, the Shepherd of Hermah, the, the Letters of Clement of Rome, Ignatian of Antioch, Clement of Alexandria. These are a lot of bad long words and I'm going to stop right there because I can't say them. Here's Clement, and this is what he wrote in 99 CE. So, what is that, 70 years after Christ died? For Christ came down, for this he assumed human nature. For this he willingly endured the sufferings of humanity, that being reduced to the measure of our weakness, he might raise up us, us up to the measure of his power. And just before he poured out his offering, when he gave himself as a ransom, he left us a New Testament, I give you my love. What is the nature and extent of this love? For each of us he laid down his life, the life which was worth the whole universe, and he requires in return that we should do the same for others. So this was a very early understanding of the cross. Now, the scriptures for this are from Philippians 3, 8 through 21. There's a lot of them. 1 Corinthians, there's several in 1 Corinthians, 1 John, 1 Peter, John, Matthew. I'm not going to read them all because I want us to move on. However, let me say this. If anybody would like a copy of my notes, I'll be happy to email them to you. And you can see where I, and my, my notes are cited as well, so maybe you can read some of the sources that I have. And I'm happy to loan them to you as well if you would like to go into a deeper dive with this. The church fathers who believe this theory, Augustine believed pieces of this theory. Augustine believed a lot. It is this theory is regularly taught in Unitarian churches and in liberal Protestant churches. The last one that I want to talk about today is the Christus Victor. Now, Christus Victor ties back into ransom, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute. This was founded by Gustav Olien. He was a Swedish theologian. He wrote a book on Christus Victor in 1931. So this is more recent. Christus Victor is a reinterpretation of ransom theory. So 
all in would say the theory that Adam and Eve made humanity subject to the devil during the fall and that God, in order to redeem humanity, sent Christ as a ransom or bait so that the devil, not knowing that Christ would not die permanently, would kill him and thus lose all right to humanity following the resurrection. Christus Victor says, because of the work of the cross, we have victory over sin, death, and Satan. Christ overcame evil with good. Allin also believes that Origen, Irenaeus, etc., they never thought of Christ's death as a ransom paid. We have misinterpreted this. This is an incorrect, incorrect reading of their works. He, he thinks that they, they were saying that Christ is the victor, not ransom. So he argues that the church father's theory was not that the crucifixion was the payment of a ransom to the devil, but rather that it represented the liberation of humanity from the bondage of sin, death, Satan. As the term Christus Victor indicates, the idea of ransom should not be seen in terms of a business transaction but more in the terms of a rescue or liberation of humanity from slavery, sickness, and sin. There's all kinds of scriptures for this one, too, that um, we can talk about, but we don't have time to go into all that because I want to get your thoughts and theories on this. This is a more modern-day version of ransom theory. It's a little bit more palatable. Uh, and some of our modern scholars like N.T. Wright and Greg Boyd, this is what they adhere to. So, oh, and also Marcus Borg. Marcus Borg is a, is a theologian that I read a lot of. I don't necessarily agree with everything he writes, but uh, he is one that believes this as well. So next week we're going to get into the big one, the penal substitutionary atonement that's been around since Luther. That ought to give you an idea of how far removed from the time of Jesus that this uh, theory came about. But it's a big one. It's in most of our, a lot of our music and... Probably a lot of us heard this from growing up, so we're going to do that next week. And, and I want to devote a whole sermon to that one because I, 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 want, I really want you to come with questions and thoughts. And uh, let's walk through that one together, okay? Um, there's an old hymn called, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. Um, the lyrics are, my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. Obviously, a Baptist wrote this song. Okay, so just, okay. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument, and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. For me, my resting place, it happened, and it's good. Something horrible is good. And I don't have all the answers to it, um, but it's enough that we can wrestle with the questions together. And I hope that that's exactly what we do over the next week, too. And I'll be glad to send you my resources if you want to research this further. I would be delighted to, actually. <laughs>